All right. For those who have a copy, uh, we will be returning to our discussion on Tertullian and baptism. Those who haven't been here, I will have to try to explain uh, everything that's been going on. So we have been, uh, we started a series on baptism in the early church. And the way we decided to approach this subject is we decided to look at three historical documents on baptism in the early church. The first one was, for those who were here, what was the first document? The Didache or the Didache, depending on which book you read and how they tell you to pronounce it, all right? Uh, the Didache and the Didi- or the Didache. And what was the most significant thing about that document when it comes to baptism? It was pretty straightforward, pretty simple, and the basic rules for baptism according to the Didache was what? Number one? Instruction preceded baptism. Number two, fasting preceded baptism. Number three, to, to be baptized into water, right? Seem, definitely seeming to go with immersion. Next, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, moving water, remember that? Cold water, right? That's what they wanted. And unless what? Unless it wasn't available, and then what were they to do? Pour water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for those who don't know, there was a big debate in the early church about if they were immersed, should they be immersed three times or only one time? There was a church council, and I I have to get dates, and I will try to verify this, that condemned the practice of single immersion because they believed it was denying the Trinity, right? So we'll have to look into that. I've got the document saved. We'll have to find which there. But the Didache was, why is the Didache so important? Probably the earliest writing we have. It's earlier than a lot of the, the books we have in the New Testament. So like, it's the earliest thing we have. And its approach to baptism was very straightforward. It did not seem to uh, refer to it as, in a sacramental way, right? And, what, and it did not seem to refer to it in any way. De- definitely nothing that would infer infant baptism. And clearly seemed to infer immersion. And I think we, we went from there. Then, we, and that puts us between 50, 60, 70 AD. And then we jump to around the 200s. Yes, and then we start looking at Tertullian on baptism, all right? And once we got to Tertullian on baptism, how can we best describe what we have seen so far in what, 15, 16 chapters that we've looked at so far? It's wordy, hard to understand, but can we say that something had drastically changed between 1670 AD and 200 AD? Something dramatically had changed. And he approaches baptism from which perspective? As a sacrament. And when we say the word sacrament, what do we mean? A means of grace. A visible means of grace in which we are not sacramental. We, are, or we would believe in ordinances, not sacraments. And when I hear Christians use the word sacrament, not know what they talk about, it's insane. But don't use the word unless you know what you're talking about because you're referring to something that produces, that brings grace, that Brings the forgiveness to sins. That produces something. All right, we talked all about that. And I think the only way to describe his argumentation at times is baffling, confusing. His approach to the Bible was what? Well, baptism involves water 
So any verse that mentions water is about baptism, right? And even when, uh, even when Adam was created from the dust of the earth, the dust of the earth was actually a picture of baptism because it had moisture in it that made it, what was the words he used? Juicy, okay, which is hilarious that he actually said that. But yes, so we looked at everything, and now all we can do is, oh, I, I can't really review anything else that already, because we were, the goal was to finish this. So if you haven't been here, all I can tell you is just uh, you're going to be lost because uh, it's, it's crazy. Trying to, just trying to read this stuff is crazy. But the reason I'm reading through it is because I know that I could probably buy 50 copies of it and nobody would read it, okay? So I'm just trying to read it through, through it for everyone so that from this point forward, if anyone mentions baptism in the early church, you can say, wait a minute, I know for a fact Tertullian said this and I know for a fact the Didache said this. And then after we're done with Tertullian, we'll go to Hippolytus on apostolic tradition. But everybody ready? Here we go. What chapter are we on? I don't know. I'm going to see if there's a... Okay, well, we didn't cover it Sunday night. Okay. And uh, the, remember the last chapter we covered was Paul's assertion that he had not been sent to baptize. And remember, Tertullian, he didn't really have much to say in regards to Paul saying that, did he? He, 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 he was like, well, I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, he didn't, he didn't really... I mean, that, the fact that that's one of the shortest paragraphs tells you everything. He didn't really know how to deal with Paul saying that he wasn't sent to baptize because Tertullian believes no one is saved without baptism. At the same time, he made an exception that you could be saved without baptism. But then he turned around and said, well, I don't know if you could have this kind of faith without baptism. So he's been all over the place, but he did not really know how to address this in any meaningful way. And I don't know if anyone really has a good explanation. If baptism produces salvation, then you cannot say Paul would ever, why would Paul ever say I wasn't sent to baptize? If it produces salvation, it would be just as essential as what? As preaching, all right? Because, I mean, no, you can preach, but no one can be saved unless they are baptized. In fact, he goes so far to basically infer that baptism is the thing that produces salvation, almost. So, and we, we've talked about all of that. So which chapter are we on now? What's the heading for those who have a copy? All right, unity of baptism, remarks on heretical and Jewish baptism. All right, I, all I can say is just hold on for those who haven't heard any of this, but all the other uh, recordings, of course, are online. All right, here we go. I know not whether any further point is mooted to bring baptism into controversy. Permit me to call to mind what I have omitted above, lest I seem to break off the train of impending thoughts in the middle. What I would like to say is, Tertullian, you've been doing that the whole time, but okay. Because he seems to say one thing, and then next thing you're like, what, what just happened here? What's just, and sometimes we can't even agree on what he's trying to say. All right, but okay. There is to us one and but one baptism, as well according to the Lord's gospel. All right? And um, 
does it, it, does it, it doesn't give us a scripture there. All right. That possibly who's, I, I thought, I think I know where he's going here, but I thought he was going to give that to us. But we'll, we'll see if he quotes it directly. Does anybody, when we talk about there's only one baptism, does anybody know what, what he was referring to? Anybody know the scripture? Yeah, does anybody know where that's at? Everyone look for the scripture that says one baptism. Everyone should at least know this one. See who can find it first. You'll get $30. With those listening online, no, I don't actually pay people for getting right answers, but Ephesians 4, 5, look at that. Whoever's fast with the phone can find the right answer. So, right. Ephesians 4, 5. All right. Ephesians 4, 5. Everybody look at it. We go back to Ephesians 4, 4. This creates serious controversy and difficulty theologically, but okay. Ephesians 4.4, there is how many bodies? One body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Now, how, as Protestants, how do we understand one body? I mean, you're the Protestants, you should know. You're the non-Catholics, so tell me, how do you understand that one body? Right, we typically view that in most Protestant churches as one body refers to what church? Sometimes we refer to it as the invisible or universal church. However, does everybody remember our long journey going through every use of the word church in the New Testament? And we had a hard time proving the existence of a invisible or universal body. Remember, we had lots of trouble finding that, yes? We had to assert that. Why do we think that the Protestants so asserted that concept? One visible, yeah, universal body, yeah. Why do you think the uh, non-Catholics had to go with a different concept? There's about a bazillion denominations, right? Depending on where you look, somewhere between 10 to 30,000 different Protestant groups. Right? There, I mean, there's a group everywhere. There, there, there's a group every time you turn around. All you got to do is just tick someone off and they'll go start another church, right? So when you've got them all over the place, so what do we say? Oh, but there's only but one body, right? Well, the, the problems with the Protestants saying that, it makes us feel good, but here's a couple of problems. One, within that one body, nobody can agree who's actually in the body, Right? Who gets to determine who's in the body? We say, well, anyone who believes in Jesus. Are you sure? So if someone believes in Jesus, but their church of Christ, believing their baptism is a part of their salvation, does that count? A Lutheran who's baptized as a baby, who believes that baptismal, that baptism was regenerative, are they saved? Right? Like we, we start asking these questions. Now all of a sudden, we can't even agree who's in the body. But not only that, it gives us some sense that there's unity. But is there any unity in that, that invisible body? I mean, we can pretend, but I mean, you know why, you know why there's unity in that supposed body? 
Because there's no, we don't meet. We don't see each other, right? Like, like I mean, there, clearly there's no agreement visibly. There's no agreement visibly, right? Does anyone agree on doctrine? Does anyone agree on theology? Does anyone agree on Bible interpretation? Do we even agree on hermeneutical approach? No, there's no agreement. So when it says there's one body and he's talking about unity, it, it, it does raise a lot of questions. But what he won't, wants to focus on is unity re- regarding which subject. Baptism, because there is one body, one spirit, even as you are called into one hope. And please note, clearly this is a reference about some kind of unity, is it not? Look at verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit is the bond of peace. So clearly this is about unity. So for us to divert unity to some invisible body that never meets and never see each other, in some way is, much, is very much a cop-out because we know we can't produce any, body, any unity where? Inside a local church. We, we can never have any unity. I mean, we, people come, they disagree. They leave. People come, they disagree. I mean, it's just, it's never ending, right? So um, it, that already there raises lots of questions. But for Tertullian, he wants to bring it down to the very next verse, verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, is there one baptism in the Christian world today? There's no unity, right? What are all the different views on baptism? All right, let's start with one is Pentecostals, which I completely reject and throw out of Christianity. But their baptism is a baptism of what? Well, the fact that I called them oneness should give you a pretty good clue. They're going to baptize in Jesus' name, not in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because they deny the doctrine of the... Remember, they're modalists. They believe in Sabellianism, modalism, right? We've talked about them, right? Yes? All right. So that's already... That's completely heretical. We wouldn't even even acknowledge that as a legitimate baptism. Right? Because it's not in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They would reject our baptism because we're not baptized in the name of Jesus. So, and either way, there's no agreement. All right? What's another, another form of baptism? We can go with a lot of this, makes up a good portion of Christianity. Sprinkling. Right? Sprinkling. That covers a, a large path of what would be called Christendom, right? Okay? Not only that, another one would be infant baptism. And, there's, and, that, and that's divided into two camps, right? What are the two camps of infant baptism? One, it's regenerative, and the other one, it just places the mark of the covenant or sign of the covenant on them. All right? So there's even division there. All right? So we've got, we've got, we got a complete uh, denial of the Trinity and a Jesus only. We've got sprinkling versus immersion. We've got infant baptism divided into two camps. Right? That we can't even agree. What else do we have? Then we got baptism by immersion, but it's essential for salvation. And that, that brings in whom? Church of Christ. Right? And then we got others who believe in immersion and that it's not regenerative. It's not necessary for salvation. It's what? It reflects or it describes. So we, we don't have one baptism. Uh, not only that, over here, even for those who believe that baptism is only descriptive or it reflects a truth, it doesn't produce the truth, and it's not necessary for salvation. There's not even agreement here. 
Because many in that camp will allow, will allow what? They'll allow the father to baptize the child. They'll, they'll allow anyone to do the baptism. I mean, that's common in the evangelical world now. People post it on social media all the time. So-and-so baptized so-and-so. The husband baptized. Well, what in the world's going on? When did that happen? When did that, when did that become a popular thing? I don't know when someone just woke up. I'm like, I'll just let a family member baptize me in front of the church. Just remove it from a church ordinance and let's just turn it into a family get-together. I don't know what's happening there. there is that, so is that one baptism? No. That, that, I mean, everyone's got to deal with that. He wants, Tertullian wants us to go, there's how many? <laughs> One baptism, okay? All right, so there is to us, and I'll go back to, the, to uh, Tertullian, there is how many to us? One, and but one baptism as well according to the Lord's gospel, as according to the apostles' letters, insomuch as he says, one God and one baptism and one church in the heavens. Now, I don't know where he gets the one church in the heavens. And that interesting one church in the heavens, he's supposedly quoting what? The Ephesians 4. All right? But as my notes say, but very inexactly quoted. Okay? It's not, he doesn't quote it very well. Now, we could ask, why is he not quoting it exactly? Why do you think? Well, we don't know what manuscript he's using. We don't know. You might remember, this is around 200-something A.D. So we want to give him a little bit of slack, a little bit of possible why, but he, just, he, he, he really threw in that there's how many church in the heavens? One. Now, is that a reference to some invisible body? We, we could have dis- disputes all, all day about that, but the point is it's not quoted. He's not referencing what there with that phrase? He's not re- referring to Scripture. All right, so we just have to note that. But it must be admitted that the question, what rules are to be observed with regard to heretics, is worthy of being treated. So now, what he wants to do is when we got the heretics, heretics defined by whom? Either the church or Archetolian. Thank you, thank you. Either he's, going to, he's either going to reference some rule, like, he, how is he going to view that? But these people are viewed as heretics, and now he wants to know how should we handle them? What, what, what should we do? What should we do? Yeah, he, yeah the, the Cainite uh, heresy. Remember, there was this supposedly a female teacher running around who was denying uh, baptism, and we talked about that at the beginning of, of his letter. Remember, he had mentioned at the beginning of the letter, the beginning of the book, or however we want to reference it. Okay, now, so when it comes to heretics, this is what he says. For it is to us that that assertion refers, heretics, however, have no fellowship in our discipline, whom the mere fact of their excommunication testifies to be outsiders. So he wants to make it very clear that the heretics are whom? They're outside the church because they've been what? Excommunicated. That's a very interesting historical note. Because what does it show us? Excommunication was already present in the 200s of some form and, and shape or form. Which is not too surprising, right? Especially because once we get to the seven ecumenical councils, 
What do we get through all the seven ecumenical councils? Anathema, 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 anathemas, and what is to happen to all the people who are anathematized? Outside the church. Done with. So that, and, and on, on one hand, that sounds, what, like on one hand, some people's like, amen, I'm glad they did that. Yeah, unless you lived then, because they, everybody was excommunicating Everybody, everybody was like, no, they're a heretic. No, you're a heretic. And not only was that happening, what else was happening at this time? Especially once you get to around 300s. <laughs> Who, that excommunication not only had religious implications, it had civil implications because whoever took over utilized civil authority to punish people for their religious crime, which is horrible and why I hate Christian nationalism with every ounce of my being, because any time church and state merges, what happens? People die. People die, right? Because you're like, it's all wonderful. Like, we want Christianity to be in charge of everything. Who's Christianity? Right? I mean, forget any other religion. Even if you wipe out every other religion, whosever form of Christianity became law, guess what happens to your form of Christianity if it's not yours? Now you become a criminal according to not only religious but civil law. You, I mean, that's, uh, yeah. Christians who want Christian nationalism scare me to, absolutely to death. I'd rather, I'd rather live in an atheistic country than, than that nonsense. Everyone killing everyone in the name of their God. It's just, it's, yeah. Too much history there. Bad stuff happens, right? Bad stuff happens. Or you have women being, people being put to death for, for supposedly being a witch because some bored teenagers created a story in Salem about their servant basically being, you know, a witch. And the next thing you know, panic runs through Salem. And yeah, we read that whole story about the Salem witch trials. So yeah, the bad stuff happens because now people are being punished. Civilly for what? A supposedly religious crime. I mean, that stuff is scary, scary, scary. So but in this case, excommunication. He goes on, I am not bound to recognize in them a thing which is enjoined on me because they and we have not the same God nor one that is the same Christ. Right? So he clearly knows, look, I don't, we don't have anything in common. We don't have anything in common. They're, they're outside. Okay, we, I can understand that. As long as you keep it theological, you don't want to bring in the civil authorities, we're okay, right? Then he says, and, there, um, and therefore, their baptism is not one with ours either because it is not the same. A baptism, which since they have it not duly doubtless, they have not at all, nor is that capable of being counted with which is not had. Simply put, what is he trying to basically say about their baptism? It's not equal to ours. It's not the same, and I, I, I bet you he would say it's what? Ineffectual. It do, in other words, their baptism did not produce what? Salvation. Now, this becomes kind of interesting, Right? So we have to at least take a moment and address this. This is interesting, okay? Think about this. If baptism produces salvation, what then makes a baptism ineffectual for producing said baptism? 
or, or what baptism, be, what makes baptism ineffectual for producing salvation? What would make a baptism ineffectual? Either not done by the church, or you would have to argue the theology of the church impacts the effectiveness of baptism, which would be kind of odd, isn't it? Like if baptism is a sacrament from God, and it supposedly produces salvation, why is it if my theology is off, the baptism stops working? Right? Because supposedly it's what? It's, it's a work of God, right? If it's a work of God, what makes it ineffectual if someone's theology is a little off? Wouldn't it still be effectual if it's, it's from God? Now, you may argue if you get the formula wrong. So in other words, you say, well, if you don't say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then it doesn't work. But even that seems kind of odd, isn't it, right? Right, I know he says they don't have the same God. I'm just taking it beyond Tertullian. I'm just taking it to its logical conclusion. Because this, this happens, right? So for example, if baptism, if baptism produces salvation, right? So if, if someone is baptized in a Catholic church or a Greek Orthodox church or a Baptist church or a Lutheran church or a church of Christ, if baptism does what it's supposed to do, does it become ineffectual due to the teaching of said church? Like logically, what would you have to, uh, I think what's the only thing you could conclude? Does everybody understand my, my, my questioning? Everybody's looking at me like I'm, I'm talking a different language, okay? Does everybody understand what I'm trying to say? Right, that's, that's what I'm asking. Would, what, why, why would who's doing it make it ineffectual? What, may, what would make baptism ineffectual if you believe it's regenerated? If it's the thing producing salvation, what makes it not work? I don't know. I'm, 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 everybody, I'm asking, this is, like, this is the question everyone should ask in regards to baptismal regeneration. If baptism produces it, then what would make that baptism ineffectual? But, but see, how, that's, my question is, how would the teaching of the church make it ineffectual? Well, well, but typically the claim is, what's always the claim from the regenerative side of those who hold to baptismal regeneration? They almost always claim that it's what? It's not our work, right? Is that not always the claim? It's a work of God. So what can make the work of God ineffectual? If I don't get my theology exactly right, all of a sudden baptism, it, it breaks? I'm saying this, that this causes, this raises questions about the entire argument about it being regenerative. If, it's really, if it really regenerates, then I don't know what can make it ineffectual. Does that make sense? Okay, I, I don't think people, uh, I, everybody's looking at me. I'm just going to skip that for now, okay? I think it's an important discussion to have because I think it raises problems. If you're going to believe it's regenerative, you've got to be able to explain to me what makes it stop working. You, yeah, someone's got to explain that to me. And I don't think, I've never been really given a definitive answer. So in that case, anyone's been baptized, by definition, should be what? Irregardless of what the church taught. That, that's how I would perceive it. 
I don't think it. I don't think a teaching could just make the water not work or, or make God stop. God's like, oh, oh, I was going to save them, but man, you got baptized in the wrong church. It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. I, I think you would have to just say that it, no matter where you got baptized, it is what? Effectual. That, that's at least what I, I feel. All right? But he, yeah, he's definitely saying that they're, basically he's saying that their baptism is what? It's invalid. It, it didn't work. It didn't work, right? And, of course, he may say because they have a different God, but, he, I mean, yeah, we could get into all kinds of... Clearly, they were inside the right church and was excommunicated. Was it because they completely rejected God, or is it just the way he's described? There's lots of questions we could have here in regards to what happened. All right. Uh, he says, Thus they cannot receive it either, because they have it not. But this point has already received a fuller discussion from us in Greek. And I don't know exactly what he's referring to there. Right? We enter then the font. Okay? Once. That's interesting. When he says we enter into, uh, we enter then the font. Seemingly to refer to baptism being what? By immersion. Because you don't really enter into the font unless you're doing what? You're getting into the water. So it seems that it still is at least pointing in that direction, not to a sprinkling. It says, once our sins washed away, because they ought never to be repeated, but the Jewish Israel bathes daily, because he is daily being defiled, and for fear that defilement should be practiced among us also, Therefore, was the definition touching the one bathing. All right. So what he seems to infer here, and I think it's pretty explicit. Once again, he believes baptism is sacramental, that it does something. Right. And so what is he seeming to imply that baptism does? Wash away sins. And it seems to be good enough for how long? Do it once and it forever works. And where Israel, they had daily bathings, daily washings. We don't need daily washings because it does it once. Now, once again, that would seem to infer what? Salvation, and it's perfect. Now, but he's, he, at times he's going to contradict this because in a little bit he's going to tell you, hey, don't baptize your kids because they may grow up and be bad. Well, wait a minute. If it washes away their sins, why wouldn't it matter, Right? So he, he, he's going to go back and forth on this, but once again, he clearly believes that it's a regenerative practice, which, of course, we would deny. Then he goes on to say, Happy water, which once washes away, which does not mock sinners with vain hopes, which does not, by being infected with the uh, repetition of impurities again, defile them whom it has washed. Basically seeming to infer... That you have heretics who have wrong baptisms. You have Jewish baptisms that are daily washings. All of that is wrong. Our baptism does what? Or according to Tertullian. Washes away sins and it is good for forever. Happy water. Happy water. Happy water. Happy water. Because the water, had, remember, it's, this, it's got this power according to him. Now, he would say the power comes from 
God, but obviously it's got to be the right kind of baptism. All right, now we come to the next chapter. And we're flying, okay? And we're moving quickly. All right, here we go. This is a short chapter. All right, what is this one called? Okay, now wait a minute. As soon as you read that, don't you kind of stop and go, wait, what's, what's just happening? The previous chapter was how many baptisms? And all of a sudden now, the second. Well, what just happened? But this second baptism is with what? Blood. Okay, what's happening? What, what is going on here with Tertullian? We have indeed, likewise, a second font. Now, wait a minute. What was the first font? Baptism. Water baptism. Now we have a second font. Well, where is this font located? He says, itself with all one with the former of blood. So we have a second, wa- a second font, and I'm going to remove the parentheses part. We have indeed likewise a second font of blood to it concerning which the Lord said, I have to be baptized with a baptism. Now, he's not giving a full quote there. Where is he quoting? Does anybody know where he's quoting? I don't think it's 1 John uh, 5, 6. Isn't that any quoting from Luke? Have to be baptized with a baptism? Is he quoting from Luke? Now tell me if you can find it. I have to be baptized with a baptism. Someone look up that phrase. Is it the Gospel of Luke or am I wrong? Nobody wants to say? Luke 12.50? I wonder, could you be right? right? Luke 12.50, it's mentioned a couple of times. I think he's referring to Luke 12.50. Right? Luke 12.50, he doesn't quote the whole thing though. Luke 12.50, but I have a baptism to be baptized with And how am I straightened until it be accomplished? Those are the words of Jesus. What baptism is he referring to there? Look at the passage, Luke 12, 50. What baptism is Jesus referring to? Luke 12.50. You can call a friend. You can talk to each other. You can use Google, Siri, Alexa. Okay. All right. Stephen was quick on it. He thinks he knows what it is. Boom. He went right there. Yeah, what? Okay, I'm getting, yeah, this is... So you're, you're seeing his, this baptism he's referring to is his what? Okay, uh, his death, okay. Well, we, we, why would we know he's not referring to water baptism? 
when Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, how do we know he's not referring to his water baptism? This is not a trick question, everyone. Thank you, thank you. Okay, yeah, just, just chronological order. He's already been baptized. All right, clear, clearly he's not referring to his water baptism. Okay, good. I was getting worried there for a second. We're in Luke 12, everyone, okay? All right, so he's already been baptized, all right? So, so we remove water baptism from it. Okay, boom. Which is important to note. Why is this important to note right here? Look, Luke 12, 50, on, whenever you debate baptism, Maybe one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Thank you. Bab- just the word baptism doesn't always refer to water. Because this is not referring to water. This is like, I can't express to you how important this verse is, okay? Like, this is so important. Here's an example where Jesus himself uses the word baptism, and it doesn't mean water. Uh, the Greek word used for baptism there, what is it? Y'all can look it up. Oh, I see, I thought this was, this is such a short chapter. I thought this was going to be simple. So this is the one I was counting on for five minutes and all of a sudden we have tr- problems. Okay, baptisma. And what is the definition of baptisma? Okay, technically or... Figuratively. Oh, it can be figuratively. And it means immersion or submersion. Ah, immersion or submersion, right? Meaning what? That baptism can be of term, has nothing to do with water. It refers to being immersed into something. What's the other one? Submerged into something. It could be united with something, and placed into something. So immediately, we can immediately realize that whenever we see the word baptism, don't immediately go, water. That's just a, that's a, a, a factual error. It could, you're, it's something about being emerged, emerged into, or immersed into, or submerged into. So what is Jesus talking about? He has a baptism that he's going to be emerged or submerged into something. What is he referring to? Okay? And everyone needs to be able to answer this for themselves. You, you don't need me to figure this out. Everyone needs to come up with an answer what they think this means. Okay? Stephen is committed on his, but nobody else is saying anything, so I don't know if everyone thinks either you're wrong or they're waiting for me to answer it for them. So I'm trying to wait if everyone, what everyone thinks here. This is very important. I mean, he just handed us like everything. He, I mean, he just gave us the most important verse on the entire subject. Okay, right. So can we all agree that what he's saying, the baptism he's got to, to endure is his being immersed and submerged into the judgment of the Father upon him and his death. Right? It's figuratively used, yes? Okay, so that, do you see, under, does everybody understand why that's important?
the, the King James. Yeah, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. Right, okay. Right, and the NIV says... To undergo, but either way, you're you're he's going to be emerged. He's going to be submerged into something, and it's clearly the judgment of God and His death upon the cross. Now, why why is this so important? Just since I don't think people were understanding the significance of it, go to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six chapter becomes one of the most controversial chapters on the subject of baptism. Romans chapter 6. Oh, we, gotta, we have to finish this chapter. I don't care what. We have to. All right. So here we go. Everybody ready? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, are, we should walk in newness of life. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, this passage is extremely important because it uses the word baptism, does it not? All right. This is a chapter used by many to prove baptismal regeneration. And they would say that baptism produces what? Basically salvation. It's baptism that we are what? That we die to sin. It's producing something. It's doing something. They, because the word baptism is used, they immediately connect it with what? Water. A rightness to walk newness of life. That in baptism, I literally die, and I literally now am made alive with a power to now basically live a, almost like a sinless life. Now, the only problem with all of this is, one, they just assume that it's water. What I can say baptism is I am united in Christ. In Christ, in my union with Christ, that's my positional standing. What is true of me in my positional standing? I'm dead. Right? I, am, I have been risen. I've been united with him in my position and his death, burial, and in his resurrection. In, my, in Christ, in my immersion and submersion into Christ, my union with him, I am dead. There is a new me. There's now no more sin. And I walk a completely perfect new life in my position. What do I know to be true of me in? No matter how much we talk about, well, after I was baptized, I watched, walked a new life. You continue to live plenty of the old life. So then baptism, you see, but they will read that the baptism, water baptism actually makes this happen. Well, clearly then water baptism is broken because all the people I've ever known who've been put in water and came out of water is the same old person they were before they ever got in the water. Oh, there may be certain changes in their life, but what, what do we still know they're going to continue to do? Sin, 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 sin. So making this water baptism, you see the problem? But I can go to Luke, what chapter? 12 verse, and know that baptism doesn't always mean actual water. 
See why that's such an important verse? Right? So everybody should go, ooh, ah, okay. All right. That, that's, I'm, I'm telling you, that's one of the most important. So now, let's go back to the beginning of this. We have indeed, likewise, a second font of blood, to wit, concerning which the Lord said, I have to be baptized with a baptism, which he had been baptized already. For he had come by means of water and blood, just as John has written, and that he might be baptized by the water, glorified by the blood, to make us, like manner, called by water, chosen by blood. These two baptisms he sent out from the wound in his pierced side. Oh boy. All right, now he goes straight, allegorical. This is the hermeneutics of the early church. It's dominated the early church. So he wants to say that we have two baptisms, and what are they? Water and blood. Okay? We have two baptisms. And so we have to have the water, right? we got to have them, because without the water, you're basically not saved, but we also have to have the blood. And how does he somehow, what is the verse he uses to try to produce or, or prove this? What verse does he reference there about the blood coming out of the side of Jesus? He's making a reference to the Gospel of John. You can just look up the phrases water and blood and probably find it in a, a second if you're using an electronic device. It's in the Gospel of John. It's got to be a closer to the end of the Gospel of John where Jesus is being crucified. I think that would probably be a good clue. So that takes away most of the, of the Gospel. Okay, is it John 19? 34? Is it 1934? All right, blood and water came out. Now, because blood and water came out, Tertullian's like, ooh, that's awesome. That proves something. That proves we need blood and water. Okay, but all, that... Because blood and water came out of Jesus, it didn't prove anything, right? Uh, what did it prove? That he died, okay? That's what it proved, right? Okay, that, that's what it proved, okay? But all right, here we go. It says, this is the baptism which both stands in lieu of the uh, fontal bathings, which, that has been, which has not been received and restores it when lost. Which that has not been received and restores it when lost lost and he just kind of leaves us there unfortunately he just kind of stops like i'm done right I, don't you kind of wish you would explain this a little bit more like a whole lot more but so now he seems to imply if we take everything he has said together how many baptisms do we need two even though he says there's one okay but one of them is a, a baptism of and physical water which supposedly saves. However, you're not saved unless you also have a baptism in blood. But it doesn't really say exactly how we get that blood, but we have to have the blood. All right. There's more we could probably ask. That last sentence is a little bit interesting, is it not? 
This is the baptism which both stands in lieu of the fontal bathing when that has not been received and restores it when lost. So it, he always, it, doesn't it almost imply that somehow this bapti- the baptism in blood may suffice if you don't get the baptism with water? Doesn't it seem what he's kind of implying? Or am I just reading that wrong? Right. Once again, he seems to be making an exception that you can be saved with what? Without the water. Even though he's already made it very clear, you need the water. Yeah, if you restore it, how, you, how do you lose it? Exactly. I wonder how you could lose it. I wonder if you start being really bad, you lose it. That, does that, that raises serious questions with his... Remember I've told you how, what's so frustrating with Tertullian? He seems to contradict himself like a hundred different ways. Now, but at the same time, I don't want to be too critical of him because when is, when is this being written? I mean, we're in the 200s, people. I mean, we've not, we've not even gotten to the Council of Nicaea. We're not, we're not, even, we're not even gotten to the ecumenical councils. We, we don't even have what in 200? We don't have a completed canon. So we got to cut him a little slack, right? I, like, I would, I would, like, well, everyone's like, I wish I could go back to the early church. There was a lot of things that they were like, uh, like if they heard you talk, they'd be like, what kind of heathen are you? They'd be like, we need this person killed immediately. That's not, they would be like, you're not a Christian. You'd be like, yes, I am. Like, no, clearly you're not. And you're like, you don't even know. Wait till you see how it's going to turn out. And they'd be like, ah! They'd be like, that's it. Just shut it down now. Just end it now. They would be like, I don't know what that, whatever you're describing sounds really bad, okay? Because it would be, it would be like a foreign language. And we, it, it's so weird how Christians don't understand that. Everybody wants to go to the church fathers to prove what? To prove that, oh, see, it's always been that way. No, you, you can't make the church fathers be what you are because they never were what we are. I know that, that people don't like to hear that, but I'm sorry. They ne- if you go, you've got to let them be what? Them, you got to let them be them. And we read them to understand, but we don't go back. And we're like, well, oh, that makes my side look bad. Why? Look, why does it make your side look bad? Because we're, look, either they, if they're the authority, can you see how confusing it's going to be trying to fix the authority? Isn't that the weird thing that when you watch the Protestant Reformation, what did Luther use to argue against the Catholic Church? He made reference to the fathers, clearly to Augustine. He was an Augustinian monk for crying out loud, right? If you're an Augustinian monk, what does that mean? You're the order of Augustine, right? So he made reference, and then, but they were making references to church fathers. Everybody was using church fathers. Because, why can everyone use a, ch- a church father? Because you can always find something in there that you think will make your side look good. And I, I can't stand those debates where this one quotes a church father and this one quotes a church father. And everybody's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And I'm like, just stop it, people. Stop it. Okay, just because you cherry pick some quotes from a church father that you think proves your point, either then they are the authority 
And if they are the authority, they don't even always necessarily agree with each other. Okay, so then which one is the authority? I mean, do you want, do you want Tertullian to be your authority? Okay, all right, next chapter. What's the next chapter? Of the power of conferring baptism. And we're going to have to stop because you guys made me late and you guys, I know, and you guys would not go quicker when I needed to, to review stuff. All right, so how many chapters do we have left now? Oh, see, we're, we're close, man. We can finish this. Hey! Okay, why are y'all being so rude, okay? We covered, how many chapters do we cover? We covered two. And I had to do a lot of review. Right? Okay, right? Now one more. Okay, the plan is to hopefully finish it tonight. All right, but if you haven't listened to the whole series, all I can ask is just ask you to go back and listen because I can't, I can't put it all back in its proper context in one quick review, but yeah. Uh, Tertullian is, is a mess, but which, the main thing I want you to take away from Sunday school, which verse in Luke, though I think is one of the most important verses in all uh, dealing with baptism? 1250. Why do I think it's so important? Because it uses the word, but it's not a reference to water. So if you read a verse that says this baptism, which now saves you, which actually is in the Bible, what question should you ask? Is that water baptism? And, and when you read Romans 6 and it talks about baptism, seemingly to, to give you the idea that it produces this, you have to ask yourself, which baptism? And when I say which baptism, in other words, a, the literal water baptism or baptism not describing water baptism, but describing an immersion or a union with something. Because by faith, I am united and I am put where? In Christ. I'm immersed. I am submerged into Christ. And then what happens to me in Christ? The old me no longer exists. And I'm a new creature. That makes sense because I know practically it doesn't work that way. So that's why that verse is so important. There's other verses that use the word baptism, right? That is, once again, not referring to water baptism. There's some other examples you could probably think of, right? Uh, Yeah, we're all, they were all baptized into, like, I think it's in Hebrews, like into Moses and the Red Sea. Well, they didn't actually get wet. Right? So they didn't get, they didn't get, so that baptism, there was figurative that they were what? All united in Moses, they were all united together, right? So, like, once again, it's the same kind of concept. So just, just, we just have to make sure, once we have that, then it helps us a long ways in trying to fix some of these problems. But we'll stop there. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Thankful we can be in a church that would take the time to read through Tertullian. We understand the complexities, the difficulties, and we understand that Our understanding of Christianity in 2023 is so radically different than what it was in 200 AD. Help us see the difference, understand the difference, and most important, be fair and accurate with it. And we ask you to forgive us when we have not been that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...